0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. I called an old friend of mine, Father Richard, in California, to talk with him about our growth plan 2024. He's uh, retired now, uh, but has done a lot of uh, fundraising and a lot of uh, ministry over his many years. And so I, I asked him about our plan and he told me uh, uh, several stories, and one of the stories that he told was about uh, the school that their church has been operating since the 1950s, and about their project to build a new chapel at the school, and the fundraising that they were going to have to do to build this new chapel. As you know, there's many grants available, and we've talked about applying for grants for our growth plan and there was a grant that was available to their congregation, uh, but it wasn't for building, uh, it was for ministries, for uh, programs. And so a member of the church came to Father Richard and said, here's what we do, we change our budget, and we move all the money that we had to programming to the building, and then we apply for the grant to pay for the programming. And Father Richard said, that's dishonest. And the man became angry. And this is, I think, what is at the core of uh, what we face in the church and that we see in all of these lessons today is, do we really see God's righteousness? Or are we blind to his justice? This is exactly what Isaiah is saying to God's people. He's saying, you know who God is. You know what he's done for you, and yet you're stumbling around in the world as if you're blind, as if you don't see the right way to live, as if you don't have any kind of understanding. And Isaiah uses this metaphor of physical sight in order to get at the, uh, the reality of spiritual sight. And of course, when we read the scripture this way, uh, it's never, you know, either or. Either we're talking about physical sight or we're talking about spiritual sight. It's both and there's an allegorical reading and there's a um, a, a, a literal reading of scripture. And we don't have to have one or the other. Right? We can have both. And the metaphors of the allegories of Scripture are very important, and that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. He says it over and over again that we're in a kind of a gloom, we're in a kind of a darkness, right? He says we're like the blind, we grope, we're like in twilight, we're like dead men, we're in the gloom, we hope for light, right? We hope for for justice, we hope for salvation, but we're walking like we don't know uh, the right way to live. And indeed, he says, as an an added metaphor to this blindness, he says that we also don't know how to talk. We don't know how to use language. He says, we growl like bears and moan like doves. This is a really wonderful figure added on the figure of blindness. So not only do we not have the spiritual ability of sight, but we also don't have the spiritual ability of calling out uh, for what it is that we need from the Lord. We've become like dumb, brute beasts. We've become like the animals. And of course, this is a metaphor that gets used over and over again, that uh, when it, the the scriptures say that we're made in God's image. It's not that we have his nose or his color hair or that God has, you know, five toes. We're made in his image, meaning that we have his ability of spiritual sight and discernment. We have the ability to discern right from wrong and then to make a choice about how it is that we're going to live. We don't like the animals live by instinct. This is something that C.S. Lewis spends seven books talking about in his Narnia Chronicles, if you've read those. The talking beasts are uh, given this ability to talk, but if they turn from Aslan, if they turn from Jesus, uh, then they turn into the dumb beasts. The only thing that allows them to speak is their worship of God. And that's like us. The only thing that gives us the ability to tell right from wrong is our worship of God, is our connection with him. We can't have sight unless we are connected with him in worship. And the way that we do that, the way that we enter into worship and relationship with God is uh, by acknowledging he's God and we're not. See how complex that is? He's God and we're not. And we call that lots of different things. One thing that we call that in the church is repentance or humility That's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, you're God, you know the right way, I'm not God, I don't know the right way, so I need you to show me. That's repentance. That's saying, uh, I need everything to be given to me from God. And so this is what uh, we see, we see this, this confession of sin here in Isaiah 59. Our transgressions have multiplied. We've denied the Lord. We've turned back from following him. We've spoken oppression and revolt. So Isaiah is saying we have to confess these things. We have to confess our own inadequacies before God in order then to receive his righteousness. And God, of course, is perceiving all of this with us. We're not telling him that we've uh, sinned because he doesn't know, right? Right? We're telling him because we really don't know. And we really don't believe it until we hear ourselves say it. God knows that we have need of a savior. He knows that we can't do it by ourselves. And so what does he do? He looks around and he says, this is in verse uh, 16 at the bottom of your page. There was no one to intercede. Then he brought his own arm of salvation. There's no one to intercede for us. There's nobody to connect us to God. And so he does that for us with his own arm. Righteousness upholds him. And then we get this beautiful passage that St. Paul quotes in Ephesians 6 right? About the armor of God, putting on the armor of God. It's probably more well known there from Ephesians 6, but St. Paul is quoting Isaiah, right? Uh, here in uh, verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation. And he put on the garments of, of vengeance. He wrapped himself in, in the cloak of zeal, right? So in order for him to repay us uh, for what we deserve, Oh no. We were really going well there for a minute, weren't we? So that he can give us what we deserve. Whoops. But we're going to go there with him. We're going to say, Yes, Lord, we do deserve to be punished for our transgressions. We do deserve that. Because as we've said before, that's the only way to get mercy. We can't ask for mercy if we haven't acknowledged our sin and the consequences of that sin. So we go with the Lord as he dresses himself for justice and we say, all that we have to expect from you is justice. And yet, because we know that you're a loving God, we ask for mercy. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. This is Jesus. Jesus in case you were wondering, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. He's coming for those who turn. That's another way of saying repentance. That's what repentance is, right? I was going this way, and I stop and say, oh, God wants me to go this way. That's it. Those who turn from transgression... So Jesus is sent for those, for those who turn, and this is shown to us in a, in a very straightforward interaction between Jesus and Bartimaeus in Jericho, which is a really great place for that interaction to take place, don't you think? If you've been reading the Gospel of Mark with us through this time after Pentecost, right? We've been talking about reading through that whole course of the Gospel of Mark, which is um, very quick. It's only 16 chapters. You ought to be able to do it in one sitting, two at the most. We see that after Jesus had done most of his ministry in Nazareth and Galilee and the northern regions far away from Jerusalem, he prepares for his death by walking down to the lower part of the Jordan River, right above the Dead Sea, which is the same place where Moses stood and told the people in Deuteronomy what they were going to have to do to enter into the Promised Land. So the same place at the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized, where Moses proclaimed the entering into the Promised Land from which Joshua led them over the river, that's where Jesus goes, and we read that he goes to that eastern shore. And now what's he doing? Jesus is walking. He's following in the footsteps of Joshua and the people of God as they entered into the promised land. So he's going through Jericho because you'll remember that's their first stop at the battle of Jericho. And then he's going to be moving now very quickly in chapter 11 to Jerusalem for his passion. Right? For his trial. So he's walking that pathway of ancient Israel. And if you'll remember, when the people of Israel defeated Jericho, the Lord said, don't rebuild it. Don't rebuild it. It's a place of curse. It's a place of turning away from God. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to walking away from God. Don't go back to cursing. Go towards blessing. So he says, if you go back to Jericho, if you go back to cursing, that's what you're going to get. But of course the people rebuilt it. And so this is a wonderful place for Jesus to meet with Bartimaeus. Because where is he at? He's in this low place, right? It's low at the place of the Jordan River. It's below sea level. right? It's this very low place compared to the highness of Jerusalem. He's in this place of cursing, this place of destruction, this place of illness. And that's where Bartimaeus comes to meet Jesus. And we read, it's very important that we read that he acknowledges when he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth. Because there's nothing about being from Nazareth that would link him to King David. And yet, what does Bartimaeus call him? He calls him Son of David. This is a name for the Messiah. So Bartimaeus is recognizing exactly who Jesus is. He heard he's from Nazareth, but he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God. And what does he ask for? He doesn't ask for healing at first. First, he acknowledges him as Messiah. He acknowledges his belief. And then what does he say? He says, have mercy on me. Do you see now how we're parallel with Isaiah? He's recognizing you're God and I'm not. I've sinned. Have mercy on me. Mercy incorporates everything that we just said, right? It's acknowledging I haven't been walking the way I'm supposed to. I've been transgressing against God's law. I should receive punishment or consequences, the results of my sin. But I'm asking out of God's love for his mercy. So you can see that in just a, a, a few short, simple phrases, Bartimaeus is acknowledging before Jesus... His repentance, his need for a Savior, and that Jesus is the one who can perform that. And then when Jesus asks him what he wants, he says he wants to be cured of blindness. Now this is something that the prophets couldn't do. We read about them doing lots of things, but we don't read about them curing blindness. This is a healing that God reserves for himself. This is a truly miraculous thing, especially when we read about someone born blind from birth, right? And of course, we're reading both and. Is this a physical blindness? Was Bartimaeus physically blind? Of course he was. Is this a spiritual blindness? Absolutely it is. So it's both and. He's going to receive from Jesus both a physical and a spiritual blindness. And Jesus says that he receives that healing. Why? Because of his faith. Well, wait a minute. Did we read about faith? Yes, we did. This is faith. You're God, I'm not. I deserve the consequences of my sin. Out of your love, you will give me mercy. That's faith. Faith is saying, I know what God wants me to do. I haven't done it. I'm going to need Him in order to help me to do it. That's faith. God tells us to do something, and we're obedient and we do it. So His faith is to say, before He gets healing, You're God. See, the world wants us to say, seeing is believing. Show me, and then I'll believe. That is the opposite of faith. We believe in order to see. We believe in order to see. Bartimaeus believes, and he is able to see. And this is exactly the point that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is showing us over and over again. And he's saying, look, you've received salvation, you've received forgiveness, you've received mercy. Now, how are you going to live? You don't get to stay as children who are new to faith. The expectation is that you mature and you live according to that faith. So it's time to put away the milk and the kitty stuff. You understand salvation. And this is why we don't preach every day or talk every day about how to get saved. Okay, you've been saved. You know who Jesus is. Now what? Now what? We've talked to you about dead works. Now let's talk about living works. Right? The writer of the Hebrews says over and over again, he talks about these living works that we're going to be imitators, that we're going to be earnest, that we're going to serve. He's not going to overlook your work and the love that you've shown. He says that you're going to cultivate what? Usefulness. We're supposed to be useful to the saints. We're supposed to be useful We're supposed to be participating in the life of the church and to have some purpose. And that purpose is going to be done with earnestness, right? It's going to be done with love. It's going to be done in service. It's going to be done with hopefulness. It's not going to be sluggish. It's going to be zealous. And it's going to be done with full faith and it's going to be done with skill see how many descriptors he uses for the work that we're called to do he's saying now that we see now that we know who God is now that we've been saved we've got work to do we're to be useful we're to be discerning the will of God in faith now that we've repented we're supposed to be on that path of serving Christ and his church. Be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. And, and the wonderful thing that I love about this is, is that he talks about the practice that this requires. For those, this is in verse chapter 5, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Trained by constant practice. Like everything worth doing playing the piano, the guitar, learning a foreign language, math, woodworking, housekeeping, house cleaning baking. I don't care what you do. If you're not doing it with diligent practice, you're not going to do it well. And the thing that we're called to do as talking beasts who see and hear and know right from wrong is to discern good from evil in practice. That's our task. Our task is constantly to be looking to see, is that right? Is that right? Is that according to God's will? Is that righteous? Is that true? Is that just? Is that holy? Is that right? Through constant practice, we're going to discern good from evil. And at the end of the day, that's really what we've got to offer as the church. If we're not doing that, We're not doing much of anything. Because if we're going to receive the food of the body and blood of Christ, and we're not going to use that for spiritual nourishment in order to discern right from wrong, then we're not doing anything. They built their chapel. They raised their $250,000, and the school got a new chapel. The people of God were faithful, and they discerned right from wrong. Father Richard's church didn't just build the chapel for the school, but after the Episcopal church took their historic property and their downtown beautiful church, they bought a brand new three acres, and they're in the process of building a brand new church facility that's going to be much better than the one that the Episcopal church took from them. Because they've been discerning right from wrong. Because they've been faithful in the ways of God. And because when one member of the church suggests, let's do something that's not right, the church says, we discern good from evil, right from wrong, and we live by faith, by faith in God, diligent in practice. May we be diligent in practice this day and forevermore.